Now, since this is my home church, I'm assuming it's all right to take off my shoes. And I also want to give just a shout out to my, woo, there it goes, my peeps in the balcony. I am so glad you guys are here because we are balcony people as well. So what I wanted to do this morning was share just a question that I have wrestled with for most of my life. And that is simply, how do I, how do we hear from God? You see, growing up, I went to a whole lot of different churches, in part, This was because my family moved around a lot as a kid. And so even though I was born in Florida and lived in North Carolina and finally settled in Colorado, in each of the different cities or towns that we lived in, we went to a different church. And so growing up, I went to Presbyterian churches, Methodist churches, Baptist churches, um, non-denominational churches, and even charismatic churches. And what I discovered kind of in going to all these different churches is that based on the church that I was going at at the time, that if I was to ask a spiritual question, I could get a wildly different answer. And so often in these different churches, when I would ask the question of how do you hear from God, I would get completely different answers. And so maybe on the spectrum of churches, if I was way over here and I was able to catch up with the woman running down the middle of the aisle with the prayer flag and ask her, ma'am, how do you hear from God? She would look at me with this incredible glowing face and say, I hear from God all day, every day. And I would think that's awesome, but you scare me a little. (laughs) Or maybe I'd be in more of a moderate church and I'd find a man who had been following Jesus for 30 or 40 years and I'd say, sir, how do you hear from God? And he'd say, well, you know, because you get a check in your spirit. And I am thinking, I am half Jewish. Do I get a deposit slip with that? Or he'd say, well, you know because you know. And I'm thinking, I don't know, which is why I'm asking you. Or or maybe in the spectrum, I'd be in a much more conservative church, and I'd just ask, you know, how do you hear from God? And they would literally cross their arms, tilt their head, and say, you're one of those. And I'm thinking, I'm one of what? I just want to have a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. And that hunger to know him and to know his voice drove me to one book, and that was this one. And what I began to discover is that the voice of God literally reverberates through these pages. From the very beginning in Genesis, with but mere words, our God speaks creation into existence. With but syllables, he, he goes ahead and he paints the sky and he pulls up the mountains and he unleashes the ocean. In the very beginning of Genesis, we get a glimpse of what it was like for mankind to communicate with God without any static in the relationship. There was no skip in the CD, no issue with the download. And yet even after a willful act of disobedience, even after the fall, God does not go silent on his people. It is God who warns Cain. It is God who saves Noah. It is God who calls Abraham. This continues throughout the Old Testament. God continually speaking both to the people and the prophets. In fact, it is the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 30 who describes how in all of our lives there will be times when the paths seem to be heading in different directions. And yet it is the voice of God who says, this is the one, walk in it. This continues throughout the Old Testament 
Testament and into the new, into the very person of Jesus Christ, a man within whom God put his whole heart on display for the world to see. And it is this man, Jesus, who in John 10 describes that God is like a shepherd and we are like a sheep. And just as a shepherd cries out to a sheep and the sheep come running, so too God cries out to us and we have the opportunity to respond in obedience. I think when it comes to the voice of God, one of the most colorful moments in all of the Bible is found in Matthew 17, that portion of scripture where time is peeled back and the Old Testament kisses the new. And on this rocky mountainside, you've got Elijah and John and Peter and Moses and Jesus all gathered together and there is this cloud and is lit up and this voice echoes down and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him all the way to the closing of Revelation where we receive the promise, yes, I am coming soon. We discover that the voice of God in our lives is no longer so much an option as much as it is an invitation to a living, vibrant relationship with God. And so when I had the opportunity to write my very first book more than 10 years ago, this was the topic that I tackled. And it was a book called God Whispers, and it was based on a passage in 1 Kings chapter 19. For those of you who have your Bibles, I would love for you to go to 1 Kings 19. For those of you who have your iPhones, you can also go to 1 Kings 19, because as we all know, there is an app for that. And as you're going there, I want to give you a little bit of background about what's going on in this passage. Because you see, back in the history of the people of Israel, originally they had priestly leadership. And they woke up one day and they said, you know what? We want to be like all of the other nations. We want to have political leadership. We want to have a king. And so God gave his people exactly what they asked for, both figuratively and literally, in their first king named Saul, who interestingly his name means asked for. Now, if you read Saul's story, you recognize that it isn't very long until the crown went to his head and he went a little crazy pants on God's people. And yet God did not leave his people there and he gave them a second king by the name of David. And David's name means beloved and he is described in scripture as having a heart after God. And yet despite his passion for God, he still got taken out by a little hottie by the name of Bathsheba. And if you read his entire story, you'll also learn that he was the kind of dad who put the fun in dysfunctional family. And God gave his people a third king whose name was Solomon. And Solomon's name is like shalom. It means peace. And Solomon actually ruled during a time of peace, and he managed to leverage that peace in order to build the temple of God. At one point, Solomon stood before God, and God asked him, what would you like if you could have anything? And Solomon says, you know what? I would like wisdom. And so the scripture tells us that God gave Solomon so much wisdom that no one ever before Solomon nor after has ever had as much wisdom as he did. And yet, despite all of that wisdom, he still got taken out by the girls, the gold, and the glory. He still got taken out by the women and the money and the power. And as we track in the history of Israel, what we discover is after they move from the priestly to the political leadership, it's like the political ball began rolling downhill until we catch up with the leaders in 1 Kings 19. And at 
this point, there is a really wicked guy ruling over Israel by the name of King Ahab. Now, and he has a wife by the name of Queen Jezebel. And the way that you know that somebody is dirty dog bad in the Bible is that nobody today names their children after them. (laughs) Which is why there aren't a whole lot of little Jezzies running around in the preschool. And yet, in the midst of this wicked leadership, God raises up a guy by the name of Elijah. And he gives a mission impossible. And as he says, it is your job to speak out against this wicked leadership. And in 1 Kings 18, we have this incredible showdown on top of Mount Carmel, which I like to call one of the Iron Chef moments of the Bible. Do we have any people here who love the Food Network? Amen. So on top of Mount Carmel, you have Elijah, and he is standing in front of a huge barbecue. And then you have all of the false prophets, and they are standing in front of a huge barbecue. And they both must try to secure the secret ingredient, which is fire. And the false prophets stand in front of their barbecue, and they beg their false gods to send down just even a spark of fire, and nothing happens. And then Elijah walks up to his barbecue, and it's almost as if he pulls out his scissors, and he cuts the wire or the hose to the propane. And then he gets some water, and he pours it on top. And then at that point, all he does is call on the name of our God, and fire descends in mass on his barbecue. It consumes his barbecue. It consumes the false prophet's barbecue. It consumes all of the false prophets. And Elijah is the iron chef. Woohoo! And he is super excited until he turns over and he sees King Ahab and he goes, Rutro, gotta go. And he heads out of town. And we catch up with him in 1 Kings, or 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4. And it says, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life for I am not better than my father's. And what we see is in a moment in time, one of God's servants goes from the very heights of life and of ministry to one of the darkest depths. He is at the end of his rope and he is ready to let go. And yet God meets him there. Verse 5 says, And he lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Now, I find it intriguing that of all the food that the angel could have brought that day, he did not show up with any great pizza. He did not show up with some fabulous Chinese to go in those cute little cartons. He did not show up with any other type of food but just basic bread and water, which is kind of intriguing because Elijah is considered a bit of a forerunner of Jesus Christ, a man who described himself both as the living water and the bread of life. And so tucked right here into 1 Kings 19, we have hints and shadows of the one who is yet to come. In verse 7 it says, And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. 
And I find that intriguing because I know that when I too am at the end of my rope, I will also find a cave. It's not one that's found on the side of one of these rocky mountains, but I will crawl into my bed, I will pull the sheets over my head, and I will beg to God to make it all go away. And yet God meets his servant there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah just lets it rip with God. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thy altars, and killed thy prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. They seek my life to take it away. And God answers Elijah, but does not answer a single one of his concerns. Instead, he says, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing, or what some translations describe as a gentle whisper. Or what one translator describes as a thin silence. And I love that description the best because it encompasses the very mystery, which is the voice of God. And it came about that when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and asked him a very familiar question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And if you continue to read this passage, you'll discover that Elijah gives God the exact same answer that he had already given him, as if God didn't hear it the first time. But then, and only then, does God answer Elijah differently. And he says, Elijah, you you are not alone. There are 7,000 others who have not bowed their knee to Baal. And you, you are not alone, because I'm going to give you a wingman, a.k.a. a partner in crime by the name of Elisha. And you, you are not alone, because I'm going to use you to anoint a new king over Israel. And in but one moment in time, we watch God reach down and meet one of his servants' needs emotionally, relationally, physically, spiritually, on every single level, giving us hope that when we too reach the end of our rope and are ready to let go, that God too will meet us. But when I read this passage, the portion that caught my attention was the idea that when God drew near, he grew near in a gentle whisper, that gentle blowing. And I thought, you know what, if that's the way that God speaks, then that's the way that I want to make myself available to him. I want to be sensitive to those little nudges of his spirit. And so when I had the opportunity to write that first book, it was called God Whispers, Learning to Hear His Voice, an effort to try to recognize God's voice without the kooky, the spooky, or the crazy pants. Amen? And yet that was almost 10 years ago. And what I've seen is that I've continued growing in my own relationship with God. I've continued getting to know Jesus even better. And I've kept reading this passage. And all I can describe is is there there are some times when we read a passage of scripture, and it's like we stumble upon this beautiful diamond, and we look at it, and it is so gorgeous. 
and then sometime unexpectedly it will shift. And all of a sudden the light will catch it from a new angle and we will get that ooh-ah all over again. And that's what's happened for me in this passage. Because while it clearly says that God was not in the wind or the earthquake or the fire, then I have to ask the question, who was? Who was? Did, did you ever think about that? You see, I have a hunch that neither the wind nor the earthquake nor the fire happened apart from God's permission or apart from his power. And in fact, God probably used the repetitive nature of those circumstances, the wind and the earthquake and the fire, in order to get Elijah's attention and to bring him to a place where he could once again draw Elijah's heart back to God's own. And I call those moments sacred echoes. What is a sacred echo? It is the repetitive nature of God's voice in our lives. It is that moment when we're spending time reading the scripture or devotional, and we have that image or that word or that phrase, and it just, it just comes alive off the page, and it just pops, and we try to close the book and walk away, except it's like it haunts us and it follows us. And then we come to church on Sunday morning, and there is Pastor Todd teaching on that exact same passage. Later on in the week, we go out to lunch with our friends, and the topic pops up again. And at the end of the week, when we can't stand it anymore, we open our Christian calendar, the one that our well-meaning Christian grandmother sent us, the one with the Thomas Kincaid artwork. And right underneath the lamp in the middle of the street is the passage again. And when we see it, we think maybe, just maybe, God is at work. And what I'm discovering in my own spiritual life is that while I want to be sensitive to those whispers of God, that when I listen for the sacred echoes, that I walk more firmly and more confidently into everything God has for me. And so this morning, I just wanted to share one of the sacred echoes that God has spoken to my heart. And I believe that it is one of the most foundational. The book, The Sacred Echo, takes a look at 10 things that God has said to me time and time again, drilling the truths of who he is and what he's called and created me to be deep inside of my being. But the one I want to discuss this morning is one of the most foundational and yet the most essential. It is also one of the shortest, and one that I would argue that there is not a man or a woman in this room who has not heard God say to them at one time or another. And it is simply this, I love you. And to what incredible lengths and depths our God will go to communicate his love to us. And yet despite the passion and the tenacity and the beauty and the wonder of God's love, if I am really honest with you, when somebody stands up and starts to talk about the love of God, there is something inside of me that, that it almost shuts down. I mean, I grew up in the church. I was a religion major. I focused on New Testament studies. I have read and studied the scripture. I feel like I have been a Christian most of my life, if not all of it. I feel like I own the t-shirt. I have read the billboard receive the text message, have the wristband, and receive the tweet. And something inside of me just begs, God, can't we go on to something else by now? And yet, despite the hardness of my heart, God keeps echoing, I love you, I love you, I love you. 
I think that of all of the followers of Jesus, the one who got this the best was the followers of John. He was the one who in John 20 and John 21 described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And when he spoke, or rather when his scribe recorded these words, I don't think that when they were penned or said that they ever had any sort of British accent to them. They, they were never like, I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. No, I think that they were spoken and written in a tone of humility and brokenness and a reality that this man, John, had spent so much time with Jesus that he took off the lenses with which he saw the world and himself and he exchanged them with the lenses with which Jesus saw. That when he looked around and he saw himself, he no longer even saw who he was. He identified himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Raising the question that if you and I truly saw ourselves as the disciples whom Jesus loved, how that would transform the way that we walk and talk and carry ourselves. You see, this follower, John, he was the one who in John chapter 3, 1, he penned these incredible words. Because whenever you read the gospel of John or the short letters about John and the words that he wrote, you'll see that he's constantly talking about love. In some ways, it's almost like it's the only theme that he can talk about. In First John 3, 1, he wrote, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. You see, I have a hunch that John did not just become aware of the love of God. He did not just see the love of God in the distance or even become captivated by it. But in fact, John became saturated by the love of God. He became so filled up with it that it was like the only thing that he could talk about, the only thing that he could tell other people about. The picture that I have in my mind's eye is of that moment when you wake up in the morning and you take a shower and you're soaking wet and you reach out to grab the towel. And as you do, those water droplets fly off your fingers. I think that is the portrait of being saturated by the love of God. That we would be so filled up with that love that it would literally just drip out of us. And we wouldn't even know that it was happening. And when somebody starts to talk about the love of God like that, I want in on the action. Why is God so persistent in echoing, I love you, I love you, I love you to each of us? I think there are the handful of reasons. The first of which is that the love of God is ultimately a transforming power. You see, when I look at the love of God within the scripture, I am finding that more than being a noun, it is a verb. You see, when we encounter the love of God, it is something that comes alive inside of us. It activates, it ignites, and it begins changing us from the inside out. I think one of the places in the Bible where this is readily apparent is in Mark chapter 12. And for many of you, this is a familiar story. It's the story in Mark 12, 41 of the widow's might. And so often when this passage is told or recited in church, it's often told in the context of giving or possibly taking up an offering. And yet more and more as I read this story, I'm beginning to see it as a love story. A love story between one woman and God. In Mark 12, 41 
It says, and he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent and calling his disciples to him. He described to them, truly, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury for they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. You see, back in the day, back in ancient times, they didn't really have offering baskets or offering plates that were passed around. Rather, in the temple treasury, there was this room, and and toward the front of it, there were these metal, almost shofar-shaped containers, and people could go in and put in their offerings according to where they wanted the money to go. And in this room, you can imagine Jesus hanging out with his followers watching, and people are coming forward. And as they went forward, they would drop in their currency, because back in the day, there was no Visa Visa MasterCard. Like you could not give online or, or, or do any sort of giving of cash. You had to give the currency, the metal coinage of the day. And people would go up to drop in their coins. And if they had a lot of coins or whether they had a few, they would put them in. And, and sometimes they'd try to put them in real quietly so it didn't make as much noise as the metal hit the metal. And other times they tried to put it in as loud as they could so other people could see how much that they were giving or at least hear the reverb reverberations of it. And in the midst of this scene, here is Jesus and his followers, and Jesus is watching the hustle and the bustle and the come and go of it, and all of a sudden he zeroes in on one woman. And odds are that she looks a little bit disheveled. She may even smell funny because she is a widow. She is broke. She is poor. She has nobody to care for her in ancient culture. And she makes her way up to the little offering area. And she reaches in and she drops these two coins, coins that are so tiny and so thin that if pressed together, they would not equal a single American penny. And she drops them in. Raising the question, did they even make a sound at all? And yet Jesus heard the sound of love in her heart. And he points her out out as the one who gave more than all of the rest. What compelled this woman to go forward and give that generous offering? You see, I don't think that she went forward out of guilt. I don't think that she went forward out of compulsion. I think that she was motivated by love. Raising the question of how many times had this widow woman heard God echo to her, I love you, I love you, I love you. Had she heard it a dozen times, a hundred times, a thousand, or ten thousand? I do not know. But what I do know is that the love of God had come alive inside of her like a transforming power. And when the love of God comes alive inside of us, we will be people who walk differently, who talk differently, who react differently, who respond differently, who carry ourselves differently, all because the love of God has been activated within us. The second reason that I think God is so tenacious in echoing his love to us is that ultimately love does not travel alone. 
What do I mean by this? I first discovered this concept when I was doing research for the book, The Organic God. I had reached a point in my own spiritual life where I realized I didn't really know God that well, and I needed to get to know him like I never had before. So I began going through the New Testament and those key books of the Old Testament, writing down every single verse that revealed something about God. And along the way, I began to discover that our God is incredibly wise. And as I began to search out wisdom in the Bible, I found that it was often described and mentioned in the book of Proverbs. And for those of you who read and study the book of Proverbs, you know that wisdom is often personified as a she. And what I began to notice is wherever wisdom is in the scripture, she is usually hanging out with her friends. In other words, where there is wisdom, discretion usually hangs out alongside of her. And wherever there is wisdom, self-control is usually a part of being there with wisdom. Wherever you find wisdom, you will also find prudence. You see, wisdom does not travel alone. She travels with her friends in the same way that love does not travel alone. And that when love walks in the room, faith is not going to hang out in the car. And when love walks in the room, peace so wants to join in the party. And when love walks in the room, joy is like, ooh, I am so there. And when love walks in the room, grace comes along as well. And it's not just that when love walks in the room that he brings his friends, but it's that when love walks in the room, some of the things that are already in the room have to go. Because when love walks in the room, fear finds the back door. When love walks in the room, angerness runs for the hills. When love walks in the room, bitterness dissipates. All because love walked in the room. So when God says to us, I love you, I love you, I love you, he is not just giving you his love. He is giving you so much more. And finally, the reason that I think God is so persistent in echoing his love to us is that ultimately, I believe that it is the love of God that helps us erase the lines that we sometimes draw in our relationship with him. What do I mean by this? A couple years ago, I was spending time with this amazing Christian woman down in, the, in Georgia, and we were sitting in our kitchen, and I remember she was making this fabulous whopper of a peanut butter pie. We're talking about life and faith and just everything that came to mind when she said something off the cuff that caught my attention. And she said, well, I don't pray for things for myself anymore. And I said, excuse me? Wait, what do you mean by that? She goes, oh, no, no, I still pray. Like, I still pray to God for my family and my kids and the church and the leaders and the government. I just don't ask God for things for myself anymore. And I looked at her and I said, well, where did you get this? Because clearly this principle isn't scriptural or biblical. How did you draw this conclusion? Like, was this one huge disappointment with God? Or was this a series of little disappointments that you had had? Where, where did this come from? And I tried to talk to her about it, but, but she really didn't want to go there. And I remember leaving that afternoon and saying, Lord, please help and heal my friend. I mean, she has obviously drawn a huge line in her relationship with you. She has said, God, I will pray for things on this side of the line. But when it comes to things on this side, it's just a little bit too close. And I don't want to go there. Number of months passed. And at the time, Leif and I were living up in Juneau, Alaska. 
Now, for those of you who have ever considered going to Alaska and looked at taking a cruise, I need to let you know that all of the photos they take of the boats on these sunny days, there are only like 12 of those a year. In in Juneau, Alaska, it literally rains 300 days a year. And on one of the most wet, sopping days, one of my friends calls and says, Margaret, today is the day. And I'm like, for what? A comforter and a hot chocolate? And she says, no, today is the day that we're going to go pick blueberries. And I'm like, are you sure? Couldn't we wait till another day? It's going to dry out in another month or so. And she says, no, Margaret, now, you know, it's the height of the season. I know this incredible patch will go. And and if you'll let me pick you up and you'll go with me, I will buy you hot chocolate. And I was like, okay, I'm there. And so she swings by in her truck. She picks me up and we start driving the back roads of Juneau, Alaska, which does not say much because there isn't that much road in Alaska. And as we're driving, we are talking about life and everything else when suddenly she pulls a U-turn. I was like, hmm. And then she pulls another U-turn. And I was like, do you know exactly where this patch of blueberry bushes is? And she's like, no, I've only been there once, but you just, you have to see it. Like the bushes are this big and the blueberries are huge. I've never seen anything like it because I'm thinking we both have blueberry patches in our own backyards. But okay, I love you. I get it that sometimes being a friend is doing things that you don't really want to do. And so we keep driving. 45 minutes later, we are still driving the back roads of Juneau, Alaska, when me, just being myself, prayed out loud and just said, Dear Jesus, please help us find the blueberry bushes. Amen. And she looked at me and she said, Margaret, why are you asking God to help you find some blueberry bushes? And I looked at her and I said, because at this point, he is the only one who knows where they are. And then she looked at me and she said, but Margaret, God doesn't answer prayers like that. And suddenly I knew that we weren't talking about blueberry bushes. I said, you want to tell me something about that? She began to describe how a few years earlier her mom had been living alone. And one night a man broke into her house. He brutally raped and murdered her. When that man was finally arrested and the case went to court, the presiding judge described it as the most horrific and heinous crime he had ever seen in more than 20 years on the bench. And she looked at me and she said, Margaret, I know that in those final moments, my mom cried out to God to do something, to do anything to make it stop. And if God doesn't answer a prayer like that in a moment like that, then what makes you think that he is going to be able to answer some prayer about finding some blueberry bushes? And I would love to tell you that I had some brilliant theological answer. But sometimes loving people is just aching with them in the moment. And so we continued to drive. Eventually we did find that patch of blueberry bushes. We got out of the truck, and in that heavy rain, I sat there with this little white pail off in my little separate bush and picking the berries and hearing the thump, thump, thump as each one dropped in. And as I am listening to that, I am praying for my friend. I am crying out to God and saying, Lord, please heal, restore, renew. God, she has drawn such deep lines in her relationship with you. Be God, heal, God, please. And as I'm crying out on behalf of my friend, I hear the Holy Spirit say to me, Margaret, she is not the only one who has drawn lines in her relationship with me. 
And I began looking at my own life. And those times when I had just faithfully prayed and said, God, will you please heal the cancer? Will you please restore? Will you please provide the cure? And the person got sick and died anyway. And though I wouldn't say it out loud, I drew a line with God. Times when I had said, God, but this is the dream that I feel like you've given me, and I just, I believe you, and I just want to put this before you, and I just felt like it was just stepped on. And I drew another line. Those times when in just daily prayer and life with God, I say, God, I just need to know you're there. I need to know your presence. I need to, I need to, and it just felt like God was a million miles away. And I drew another line. And as I sat there in the rain that day by those blueberry bushes, what I began to realize is that over time, after you draw enough lines in your relationship with God, there is simply nowhere else to go. And that is why the love of God is so important. You see, it is only by the love of God that we begin having the strength to begin erasing some of those lines in our relationship with him. It is only with the love of God that we begin having the hope that some of those lines can move and erase in our life. And it is only with the love of God that we begin having the courage that we can move beyond those lines that we have drawn with him and begin once again walking in the fullness and the wholeness with which God has called and created us. So the love of God helps us erase the lines that we draw in our relationship with him. So my hope and my prayer for you is that you too will begin hearing God's voice in your own life, not just as a gentle whisper, but as an echo. And over the upcoming weeks and months, you will recognize the love of God in your life. As God echoes to you, I love you, I love you, I love you, that that love will come alive inside of you like a transforming power, that you will recognize that when God is giving you his love, it is not just his love, but it is so much more. And that in the process, the Holy Spirit will reveal any lines that you have drawn in your relationship with him. And that you will embrace the wholeness and the healing that God has for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are a God who speaks. That you are a God who is alive and active and engaged in all of our lives. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us eyes to see the ways that you are moving, ears to hear your voice, and a heart that beats hungry after you. Lord, make your voice clear to us and make the revelation and the truth and the wonder and the beauty of your love for us so much more alive that we may not just be captivated but saturated by it. We are grateful to be called your kids in Jesus' name. Amen.